executive producer Isaac Saul. This is Tangle. afternoon and good evening and welcome to the tangle podcast a place where you get news from across the political spectrum some independent thinking and a little bit of our take that's right actually today you're getting our take Uh, a little bit more on that later i am your host john law today is wednesday january 17th 2024 and we are going to be discussing the iowa caucuses First, we introduced a new podcast series. In our first ever Friday podcast, we talked about the 2023 end-of-year review, and Isaac introduced Ari Weitzman, our managing editor, as the new co-host. Ari and Isaac have known each other for a long time, so they have some funny stories to share, some very smart commentary on how we did this year, the things we got wrong, the things we got right. And you can listen to that episode on whatever podcast platform you are currently listening to this episode on. Lastly, our schedule is a little different this week. Isaac is in Bolivia. He left a pre-recorded message yesterday. If you didn't get a chance, you can listen to yesterday's podcast to hear that. The Tangle staff, with Isaac as reviewer and editor, collaborated on today's first staff take. Tomorrow will be a mailbag edition of reader email responses with Isaac as the primary author. All right, with all that out of the way, let's kick things off, as always, with some quick hits. First up, the U.S. launched another series of strikes against Houthi rebels in Yemen and destroyed four missiles that it says posed a threat to ships in the Red Sea. Separately, Israel and Hamas agreed to a deal that will deliver medicine to Israeli hostages in Gaza in exchange for delivery of medicine and humanitarian aid to Palestinian civilians. Number two, Senator Ron Wyden, the Democrat from Oregon, and Representative Jason Smith, the Republican from Missouri, announced an agreement on a $78 billion package that would temporarily expand the child tax credit, boost the low-income housing tax credit, and enhance tax breaks for businesses. The package must now pass the House and the Senate. Number three, a Federal Reserve official signaled against forecaster expectations that the Fed would not be imminently cutting interest rates, dampening some optimism in the market. Number four, a federal judge blocked JetBlue Airways' $3.8 billion deal to purchase rival Spirit Airlines after the Justice Department sued to stop the merger. And number five, the Supreme Court will hear arguments today in two cases that aim to overturn the Chevron Doctrine, a nearly 40-year-old legal framework that says judges should defer to federal agencies' interpretations of a law when the law is ambiguous. begin this hour with the first voting in the 2024 presidential election. It kicks off tonight in the Iowa caucuses. Voters there are battling heavy snow and sub-zero temperatures in a political contest with huge implications for Republicans, even though one candidate is way out in front. On the big news last night of what was simultaneously a big night and a foregone conclusion for former President Donald Trump in the Iowa caucuses, CBS News projects that Trump got 51% of the Republican vote in the Hawkeye state, even more than expected. It is a historic landslide victory. 
As for the race for the very distant second place, Ron DeSantis beat Nikki Haley just barely. And those results are enough to keep them both on the campaign trail. But Vivek Ramaswamy's run is over. The GOP frontrunner has led every poll in the Hawkeye state ahead of tonight's victory in his bid for the Republican nomination. And we're also getting a picture of what is on voters' minds in, because of these entrance polls. They reveal that the economy and immigration are the top concerns for Republicans in Iowa. On Monday, Donald Trump scored a landslide victory in the Iowa caucuses, kicking off the 2024 Republican presidential primary with a big win. Polls closed in Iowa at 7 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And by 8.32 p.m. Eastern Time, The New York Times, 538 and ABC News, and Fox News Decision Desk had all declared Donald Trump the winner. The former president began his third presidential campaign by winning 98 of Iowa's 99 counties and capturing 51% of the vote, a record for a margin of victory in the Iowa caucuses. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished second with 21% of the vote, Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley finished third with 19%, and Vivek Ramaswamy finished fourth with 8%. Just over 108,000 voters, or 14.4% of the state's Republicans, turned out to vote. It was the lowest turnout in Iowa caucuses since 2008. After the race was called, Ramaswamy officially dropped out and endorsed Donald Trump. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson also dropped out, and like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who suspended his campaign ahead of the Iowa caucuses, has yet to endorse any of the remaining candidates. Puntons were unsurprised by Trump's victory, but called the result that saw Trump win more votes than the rest of the field combined a landslide. The former president was able to win the votes of not just 54% of Republicans, but 42% of independents, according to exit polling by The Washington Post. Trump also won 67% of voters who did not have a college degree and 58% of voters 65 years of age and older. The only demographic in which Trump struggled was with voters aged 17 to 29, where his 22% vote share was lower than both DeSantis's 30% and Haley's 25%. In his victory speech on Monday night, Trump struck a conciliatory tone, saying that DeSantis and Haley actually did very well and commending Ramaswamy on doing a hell of a job in his campaign. I really think this is time now for everybody, our country, to come together, he told supporters at a watch party in Des Moines, Iowa. Meanwhile, DeSantis's campaign staff and supporters spent much of the night attacking the media, saying that the race being called for Trump before some had even cast their votes was unfair. The media is in the tank for Trump, and this is the most egregious example yet, DeSantis campaign spokesman Andrew Romeo said in a statement. The next state on the presidential primary schedule is New Hampshire, which will have its Republican and Democratic primaries on January 23rd. Today, we are going to cover reactions to Donald Trump's victory in Iowa from the right and the left, and then our take. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. First up, we'll start with what the right is saying. The right is unsurprised by Trump's victory, and most think he has all but locked up the nomination. A few cast doubt on whether the strength of Trump's performance in Iowa will be replicated in other states. Others say the Iowa voters sent a clear message to DeSantis and Haley that they have no shot in this race. In The Federalist, Jordan Boyd wrote, It's time to stop pretending there's a GOP primary. 
The real threat to Trump was never DeSantis, Haley, or any of the other soon-to-be GOP dropouts who complained that he refused to debate people who were dozens of percentage points behind him. It was always the regime that abused its presidential and bureaucratic power to indict its political enemies and wage war on wrongthink, Boyd said. Trump winning the majority in Iowa confirms he is best equipped to face off with Biden in the general election. Biden and Democrats are guilty of weaponizing federal law enforcement, cheapening impeachment, fueling polarization, normalizing political violence and rioting, undermining election integrity, rejecting election results they don't like, encouraging the collapse of our southern border, and advancing extreme unpopular agendas, Boyd added. The question going into Iowa was never will Trump survive on a campaign diet of calling out Democrats' political persecution. It was always who will get second place. In National Review, Noah Rothman said Trump won big but suggested the results don't necessarily forecast smooth sailing. The headline is clear. Donald Trump won, and he won big. No grand theory of last night's results that evades the voters' resounding verdict or attempts to massage it into something more ambiguous is worthwhile, Rothman wrote. And yet, Iowa's results did not forecast smooth sailing for Donald Trump. If the former president is functionally the incumbent in the race, he is an exceptionally weak incumbent. The Hawkeye state is prime real estate for Trump's movement, and he managed to win the support of only half the voters who turned out. What's more, the turnout was weak. These were the lowest attended caucuses since 2000, and that cannot be attributed entirely to the abominable weather. Beyond that, Trump's resounding victory is attributable to the vote of just 56,000 Iowans. That's an improvement on his 2016 performance when he won just 45,000 votes and came in second place. But it's not much of an improvement, Rothman said. It's reasonable to expect that Republican voters will fall in line after a polarizing general election campaign. Get in line or get left behind will be the message retailed by every conservative media outlet. In the Washington Examiner, Jeremiah Poff argued, taking on Trump for the GOP nomination was always a fool's errand. Despite desperate wish-casting from institutional Republicans and the donor class that either Governor Ron DeSantis or former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley could pose a challenge to Trump and deny him a third straight nomination— The fact remains that Trump speaks to Republican voters in a way no one else does, Poff said. While Haley is still going to make a play for New Hampshire next week, the clearest evidence for why she did not connect with Republican voters was that registered Democrats in Iowa switched their party registration so they could cast a caucus vote for her. DeSantis, meanwhile, will likely finish a distant second to Trump. His campaign was always billed as Trump without the baggage, and for a while it seemed like he had a shot to dethrone the frontrunner. But as the establishment attacks on Trump built, especially the four criminal indictments against him by the Justice Department, DeSantis's polling strength evaporated as voters rallied behind the former president, Poff wrote. Issues matter to voters, but the messenger on the issues is equally, if not more, important. This is why Haley and DeSantis failed to break Trump's stranglehold on the Republican base. All right, that is it for what the right is saying, which brings us to what the left is saying. The left is dismayed by Trump's strong showing and worry the result will further embolden his extreme rhetoric. Some criticize Iowa voters for overwhelmingly supporting a candidate who seems out of step with their stated values. Others say the caucus system is no longer useful in our current political ecosystem. In MSNBC, Hayes Brown said, Trump's Iowa win is the first step on his road to retribution. 
Despite its legendary status in America's political culture, the Iowa caucuses have a less-than-stellar track record when it comes to picking presidential nominees. But since the emergence of the modern presidential primary system, there's never been a race like this year's. Trump didn't just win in Iowa. He won massively, likely shattering the record for margin of victory. It is a landslide that serves as an endorsement of the constant drumbeat for vengeance that Trump has made a centerpiece of his campaign, Brown wrote. There's a case to be made that too much is made of Iowa, that its first-in-the-nation status overinflates its importance compared to the influence its voters actually have. The bitter cold and blizzard-like conditions this weekend, paired with Trump's dominance in the polls, tamped down participation even further than normal. But as a measure of where Trump stands within the Republican Party, the results out of Iowa are, for once, truly reflective of the country writ large. And it is more than ready to see Trump back in the White House, ready to mete out his wrath on anyone who stood in his way. In The Nation, Joan Walsh wrote, Iowa finally picked the GOP nominee. Disgraced former President Donald Trump, he of the 91 felony counts, lost Iowa in 2016. The state GOP's strong evangelical vote went to Senator Ted Cruz. Eight years later, that same block backed the twice-divorced con man who a New York jury found sexually assaulted writer E. Jean Carroll. Trump won more than half of the Iowa vote, Walsh said. Trump's big win is the story of evangelicals embracing cruelty, immorality, and authoritarianism. It's a story of Iowa's being increasingly dominated by white voters who didn't go to college. But we should also pay attention to the way even some college-educated white Republicans found their way back to Trump. Iowa is known for giving primary season wins or surprisingly strong finishes to such presidents as Pat Robinson, Pat Buchanan, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, and of course, Ted Cruz. Oh, right. Those guys never even came close to winning the nomination. This time around, Iowa almost certainly picked the GOP nominee. In Bloomberg, Patricia Lopez suggested it's time to scrap the Iowa caucus. The Iowa caucus has become an outdated relic. Like eight-track cassettes and checkbooks, it served a valuable purpose at one time, but no longer. Donald Trump, as he has with so many things, reset the rules of the political game here, Lopez wrote. DeSantis and Haley played by the old rules, knocking on doors, fielding voter questions, and visiting each Iowa county. Trump? He held a couple dozen rallies, including some tele-rallies, sent in a handful of surrogates, and staged photo ops. For this, Trump was rewarded with a historic win on Monday night, romping to a landslide that demonstrated his demographic strength in every corner of the state and among every kind of voter. The caucus is increasingly out of step with how modern America lives, works, and picks its presidential candidates. Because it's held over a couple of hours on a weekday evening during the bitterest part of winter, many Iowans are excluded from the process. Unlike primary voting, there are no absentee ballots, no early voting periods. Because it's a party process, there is no time off from work to vote, Lopez said. Now Trump has shown that there is no need to play by the rules in Iowa, exposing the falseness of the narrative about small-town democracy even as he benefits from it. All right, that is it for what the right and the left are saying, which brings us to Tangle's take. Just as a reminder, the My Take section is where Isaac gives himself space to share his personal opinion. With Isaac being in Bolivia, today's take was authored by a collaboration of Tangle staff and reviewed and edited by Isaac. There's a reason we haven't overreacted to momentary trends in this primary, and it's what we've been telling you for months. Trump has this race sewn up. Donald Trump is the face of today's Republican Party. Even if you're a conservative who detests him, you can't deny the numbers. 
He won the majority of votes in a somewhat crowded field decidedly enough for Vivek Ramaswamy to drop out of the race and endorse him. To get a sense of just how far gone this conclusion was, the New York Times called the race for Trump when only 497 votes had been cast. And even with Nikki Haley closing the gap, there's little reason to think that New Hampshire's primary will be any different, nor will any of those that follow. Just a few states after New Hampshire will be the primary in South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state, where the former governor has only a 30-point deficit behind Trump. That's a bit better than the 43-point deficit Ron DeSantis has in Florida, where he's the current governor. Yes, there's plenty of time between now and the Republican National Convention in July. But just as the networks were ready to call Iowa immediately, we're ready to call the entire race now. We've seen enough. Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. The only real drama of the night, aside from the race for second, was just how early the race was called. Soon after Trump was declared winner, tweets from DeSantis supporters started popping up on social media, chastising the networks for calling the race too soon. The debate spilled over into the next day with conservative writers sparring in the pages of National Review. We understand why it's off-putting for a race to be called while thousands of people are still waiting to cast their votes. Outlets like the Associated Press even appeared to violate their own guidelines in doing so. It's also not hard to imagine how networks racing to be the first to announce an election winner could be a recipe for disaster in a different situation. In Iowa, though, the complaints feel like just sour grapes from the runner-up. Trump's polling lead was so enormous that the networks only needed the initial results to know that the polls were accurate enough to ensure his victory. Which leads us to the race for second. A couple of months ago, a reader wrote in to ask why, if we thought the primary's outcome was a foregone conclusion, we were giving the race any attention at all. Our answer was and is that the race for second may end up mattering if something happens to Trump because of his health or his legal challenges, but more importantly, that it tells us a lot about the Republican Party. Following the big wins from the Democrats in the 2023 midterms, the third Republican debate told us how the GOP messaging on abortion was changing. The growing support for Nikki Haley, the flagging support for Ron DeSantis, and the disappearing interest in Ramaswamy told us that modern Republicans were shifting away from culture war rhetoric and towards policy prescriptions. Now Iowa voters are telling us they preferred DeSantis over Haley, which is good news for the Florida governor's political future, especially considering how disastrously his campaign has been run. DeSantis will learn a lot from this race. It's not a great look for his team to be complaining about the results, and kind of ridiculous to say that the mainstream media is in the tank for Donald Trump. But remember that his political career is still relatively young, and it's a good bet that he'll be right back in the mix in 2028. And so will Haley. She's gotten big donations, and she's proved she's ready for prime time. But none of that matters for the outcome of the presidential primary, and there are no points for second place. The biggest question looking forward isn't if one of them can challenge Trump, but whom he'll choose as his running mate. Clearly, Ramaswamy is angling for the job, which the team at Tangle HQ is split on. Isaac has gone out on a limb and said he thinks it'll be Tim Scott. Managing editor Ari Weitzman has picked South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, and Partnerships Director Magdalena Bakova likes New York Representative Elsie Stefani. But editors Will Kabeck, Bailey Saul, Isaac's dad, and I all think it'll be Vivek. Still, regardless of whose name appears on the second Republican ticket, there's less and less doubt every day about the name that's going to appear first. We'll be right back after this quick break. All right, that is it for Tangle's Take, which brings us to your questions answered. 
Today's question is, how is the island of Maui recovering from the August wildfires? Every once in a while, a news story drives a lot of attention as it unfolds, but media outlets and most readers move on really quickly. In those situations, we like to make a note to check back later and see how the situation has progressed. As those who listened to the Friday podcast or read our 2023 lookback were reminded, that was the case last November when we reviewed Biden's border policies from March. And since we're answering a lot of reader questions in a mailbag edition tomorrow, that will be the case today too. Today, we're taking a moment to check in on the recovery effort in Maui without weighing in too much on the politicized argument of who or what to blame the fires on. Here's what we said in August. On August 8th, a series of deadly wildfires erupted on the Hawaiian island of Maui. The death toll has reached 114, with 850 people still missing and 85% of impacted areas in Maui searched. The historic town of Lahaina has been completely destroyed, though several other areas of the island were also impacted. The fires are now the deadliest natural disaster in state history and the deadliest wildfires in modern U.S. history, surpassing 2018's campfire in Paradise, California, which killed 85 people. An estimated $6 billion of damages has been done, with 3,000 homes and businesses destroyed or damaged. Based on the most recent data available, the official death toll is at 100 people, down from the original estimate after some of the missing who were presumed dead had been found, although four people remain missing. 2,200 homes were destroyed by the wildfire, also under the initial estimate, leaving 7,000 people in need of shelter and burning an estimated 10 square miles. Hawaii Governor Josh Green announced that the state will pay $1.5 million to any family that lost a loved one in the fire. Additionally, Green is seeking $425 million from the state legislature for the recovery effort, including $200 million for insurance claims. $33 million to rebuild roadways, and $186 million for other costs as they arise. On January 5th, the Hawaii government, together with housing nonprofits, launched a $500 million interim housing plan to provide 3,000 units for the next 18 months. Although some of the figures are slightly better than initial reporting and parts of Lahaina are reopening, the big picture is far from bright. Northwest Maui is still ravaged, and the recovery effort is expected to take years. The latest news on the recovery process is available at MauiRecovers.org. K-H-O-N in Honolulu hosted a roundtable discussion on the Lahaina recovery efforts, and you can view that with a link in today's episode description. All right, that is it for your questions answered, which brings us to our Under the Radar section. A new study from the CDC warns that clinicians in the U.S. may be overprescribing topical antifungal treatments for skin infections, suggesting this trend could be behind new skin infection cases that appear to be resistant to these medications. CDC researchers found that 6.5 million topical antifungal treatments were prescribed to Medicare Part D beneficiaries in 2021, roughly one out of every eight people in the surveyed group. Diagnostic data wasn't available for the study so researchers weren't able to conclude whether the high volume of prescriptions was backed up by positive fungal infection tests. Furthermore, the researchers did not track the use of over-the-counter antifungal medication, meaning actual antifungal usage is likely even higher than the findings suggest. The rise in the emergent-resisting infections underscores the need to evaluate current practices of topical antifungal use, the study's authors said. Ars Technica has the story, and there's a link in today's episode description. All right, next up is our numbers section. 
The first year Iowa was the first state to vote in the presidential primary process was 1972. The number of presidents who won the Iowa caucuses since 1976 is three. That's Jimmy Carter in 1976, George W. Bush in 2000, and Barack Obama in 2008. The number of presidents who did not win the Iowa caucuses since 1976 is five. That is Ronald Reagan in 1980, George H.W. Bush in 1988, Bill Clinton in 1992, Donald Trump in 2016, and Joe Biden in 2020. The percentage of Iowa caucus goers this year who said Joe Biden legitimately won the presidency in 2020 is 29%, according to NBC News' entrance polls. The percentage of Iowa caucus goers this year who said they had decided which candidate to support more than a month prior to the caucuses was 65%. The percent of Iowa caucus goers this year who said they would still consider Donald Trump fit to be president if he were convicted of a crime is also 65%. The percentage of 2024 Iowa caucus goers who participated in NBC News' entrance poll who are white is 98%. And last but not least, our Have a Nice Day story. In the suburbs of New Jersey, Taib Suami made a mistake. He brought home a $5 bottle of orange juice from a grocery store in Hackensack. When he got home, his wife told him that the same bottle was available for $2.50 elsewhere. So Taib went back to ShopRite to return it, where a sign for the Powerball jackpot at the customer service counter caught his attention. Using the cash from his refunded orange juice, he bought two tickets, which he brought to a convenience store the next day to check. His first ticket, the scanning machine told him, was not a winner. Upon scanning the second ticket, the scanner told him to see the cashier. Suspecting a machine error, he brought his ticket to the counter, where the clerk told him there was no error. Taib had won the Powerball jackpot. This time, his wife was a bit more satisfied with what he brought back from the store, a winning lottery ticket for $315.3 million. ABC News has the story, and there's a link in today's episode description. All right, everybody, that is it for today's podcast. As always, if you want to support our work, please go to readtangle.com and sign up for a membership. You can also check out our Instagram page and our YouTube channel for some other high-quality content that you won't find in the newsletter. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Have a good one. Peace. Our podcast is written by me, Isaac Saul, and edited and engineered by John Wall. The script is edited by our managing editor, Ari Weitzman, Will Kadak, Bailey Saul, and Sean Brady. The logo for our podcast was designed by Magdalena Bakova, who is also our social media manager. Music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. And if you're looking for more from Tangle, please go to readtangle.com and check out our website. Tangle.